The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight, I'm thrilled to introduce a fearless journalist and an expert in pandemic propaganda. From AIDS to COVID-19. In 1984, when the Secretary of Health and Human Services declared that HIV was a probable cause of AIDS, Celia Farber was the only reporter who dared to question the official narrative and examine the science behind the disease. Her groundbreaking reporting on the deadliness of AZT and Dr. Fauci's trials on children, infants, and pregnant mothers was largely ignored and led to her being maligned and canceled. Today, 40 years later, after her original reporting, Farber's book, Serious Adverse Events, An Uncensored History of AIDS, is more relevant than ever and serves as an essential foundation for understanding the catastrophic sequel, COVID-19. Her work exposes the fear-mongering, cancel culture, and woke takeover of science, medicine, and journalism, which we will see all around us today. Celia Farber is a native New Yorker who grew up in Sweden and returned to the United States to attend college. She's best known for her writings against pandemic propaganda, but she was also an early critic of the emerging thought forms that would become quote-unquote woke. Farber has written for Harper's, Esquire, Rolling Stone, Salon, the New York Press, and the New York Post, among many other publications. She wrote and edited Spin Magazine's AIDS column, Words from the Front, from 1987 to 97. Her Esquire cover story, of O.J. Simpson broke sales records for the magazine in 1998 once translated and syndicated to over 25 countries. She now divides her time between Spain and New York City. We are fortunate to have Celia Farber on Veritas today to share her insights on the current pandemic, censorship, and the state of journalism. You won't want to miss a single word of this interview if you want to uncover the truth about AIDS, its sequel, COVID-19, and the tactics employed to manipulate the masses, stay tuned and don't go anywhere. Welcome to Veritas. If this is your first time listening, welcome home. To access tonight's full interview and all of our exclusive material, simply join the Veritas Plus family by clicking on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. And while you're there, don't forget to check out the Veritas store for a range of great products, including Focus Life Force Energy. Experience the power of FLFE with a 15-day free trial today. No credit card required. We're excited to announce the launch of our brand new Veritas Plus Insider, your source for exclusive news and insights you won't find anywhere else. If you're looking to get in touch with Mel, have a guest suggestion, or would like to provide feedback, simply click on the contact button on our website. So sit back, relax, and enjoy tonight's show. And now, here's your host, Mel Hasselrich. And directly from somewhere in the United States, I'd like to welcome Celia Farber. Hello, Celia, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hello, Mel. Very nice to be with you. I'm, I'm uh, like all of us, shocked, stunned, overwhelmed by the world. But, um, but things are coming clear. Many things are clarifying, I feel. I have to ask you from the beginning, and I mentioned this to you offline, but I have to say right at the beginning, I just finished the book this morning, and it's almost as if I could remove the word H, and I know they're totally different scenarios, I know that, but mm -hmm. I could remove the word H 
and it's almost as if it's repeating, literally a sequel. But let's begin in chronological order. How did you become interested in reporting on AIDS and COVID-19 too? Uh, it, it actually started with an emo- emotional state that was the the implanted, propagandized state, which was fear. I was, I had come to New York, back to New York City after I was born in New York City, but then had my most of my childhood and in, in Sweden from well, actually from the age of eleven to eighteen. Then returned to the states with fever dreams of investigative journalism wanted to become a journalist and um, the AIDS propaganda scare had, had actually been underway for a couple of years. And like everybody else, I simply believed that I was going to die from this, (laughs) this thing. And so I think to the extent I had an, an obsession early on and I did obsessive interest, it was born of that anxiety and fear, but it quickly turned into obsessive interest in what might be wrong with the official theory, which turned into tracking on the one hand scientists who spoke and sounded like scientists who were saying the whole orthodox, everything they were saying was unfounded, destructive lies versus the orthodox side and trying to reconcile these two polar opposite sets of voices. Going back to 1984, the then U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services, Margaret Heckler, she declared that the probable cause of AIDS have been found. And let's begin with Dr. Robert Gallo. Who was he and what part did he play in the HIV-AIDS hypothesis? Yeah, so Gallo, Gallo was known as a very ambitious, I'm going to try to be as generous as I can, okay? because. There are there are some who would just tear him tear him apart, but I don't like to do that. So I want to just give him his just due as best I can. Uh, he was he was he was known to be let's just say kind of more ambitious than <laughs> um, than scholarly. So he was this guy who was you know very much possessed by Nobel dreams wanted to, you know, quixotic, like save the world, save. He, he had had a, um, a sibling who had died of leukemia. So he had a family before, before the famous, fam- famously named HIV. He had a family of leukemia viruses that he was seeking to attach to. So he was like the guy with a bag of viruses looking to attach them to a very important disease. And he hadn't succeeded and uh, this time he succeeded. So the word on the scientific street when Gallo did his press conference, the scientists I later came to know so well, this particular story came from Harvey Bialy, Dr. Harvey Bialy. He's no longer with us. He was this he was he was the uh, founding editor of Biotechnology magazine. And he became Peter Duisberg's, we'll get to him soon, I imagine, um, scientific biographer. Yes. But Harvey Bialy told me that, speaking for himself, when he heard there was going to be a Robert Gallo press conference announcing a retrovirus to be the cause of AIDS, you know, they were just laughing. No, nobody, they didn't go. They, and, and he said to himself, 
oh, of another Bob Gallo vir virus, that'll never fly, famous last words. So he was viewed as um, promiscuously attaching, attempting to attach his so-called, I have to say, viruses to illnesses and being very ambitious and being very loose and fast. But I, I don't think he was seen as being the dark figure that he kind of became. Does that make sense? I mean, was he and he, Peter Duisberg were friends. They played tennis together. We'll talk about you know, Peter Duisberg in a moment, but was Robert Gallo kind of the equivalent of, of Fauci today, or am I wrong in saying that? Well, they're very different archetypes. And um, we, the, the dissidents... And in what you read, by the way, and thank you for the introduction, I, I, what, you, what you said, rather, I, I, I want to say right off the bat that there were so many of us. And I, 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 I was not the only one, but I was maybe the most persistent one. And I was one of the very first. So, um, you know, I thank you for that. I'm not correcting you, but I just want to expand the lens so that there are just so many players in this thing. So I want to try to stay focused on what's important. But you just asked me, was Bob, was he like a Tony Fauci? Okay. So you know how the Godfather is uh, masterfully silent, Machiavellian, right? The actual Godfather, the movie and the book. Right. So, so that's, that's Fauci. Gallo was a loud mouth. I mean, he called me. There was one day I came back to the office at Spin and we had run our first series. It was back to back Q&A with Peter Duisberg. We're talking eight, 1988 now, early 1988. Q&A with Peter Duisberg, followed by a captured Q&A with um, Robert Gallo by another journalist named Anthony Liversidge. He called him up and said, what do you think about this Duisberg fellow? And he just recorded Gallo's lengthy and frankly hilarious tirade and so he would go on these tirades and they they were funny they were colorful they were they were crazy he would he was very expressive italian um dominating um and you might say yeah manipulative and so forth but he was not this um silent shark archetype so those two are very different. At the time, we were very focused on Gallo. And now the world is, for understandable reasons, much more focused on Fauci. I never really wrote much about Fauci. We all wrote a lot about Gallo. When I say we, I mean this international community. We called ourselves the AIDS dissidents. The, our enemies called us the AIDS denialists. So does that does that answer your question at all? What it I does. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for putting things in perspective. Sure. And Peter Duisberg, who's a, a very important figure in, in this whole age. What did Peter Duisberg, what did he question in the 80s? And I mean, by the way, I remember as if it was today, uh, starting at the university in, in August of 1985. And all you saw were pictures of Rock Hudson and AIDS and in Africa and the fear every it was a different thing than what we see today with with the sequel covid-19 but i still remember that so but what did peter who was peter duesberg and and what did he question yeah so I, I another another archetype you might say peter was more of a peter was was br a brilliant 
highly decorated, you might kind of say a golden boy archetype who came over from a German um, cancer virologist who came over from, and that's a really complicated term. We'll unpack all these terms as we go, but, but he came over from Germany from the Max Planck Institute was, was, I guess the, I guess the right word would be handpicked at a very young age to come in to to come to the United States and was highly um, funded at the highest level. There is there's a hierarchy to government science funding, and he was at the very top. He was at the top of everything. He was the young one of the youngest members ever voted into the National Academy of Sciences. Sometime, I believe he must have still been in his twenties. He was, I guess you could say, on, on the p- potential road to a Nobel Prize for a chapter known as the oncogene chapter. And he, as I say in chapter one, or as I, as I wrote in chapter one, which is called The Passion of Peter Duisberg, and I think that might be my favorite chapter, uh, he was known before he did what he did with HIV and AIDS, namely contest it, to say the least. He did. He had been doing that consistently because he's this sort of German... I don't know how much German has to do with it, but a thoroughbred scientist, maybe I should say European thoroughbred scientist who comes in and doesn't think the game the way an American scientist like a Gallo or a Fauci. So the way I always see things dramatically as a writer, you know, like it's a big human drama, right? It's a big tragic human drama, the whole thing. So I was always looking at the characters. So Peter's, character was um i'm going to say pure pure very well trained and destined for greatness scientist who comes to america land of the free and discovers fascism in american science in the most shocking way as he is he he reaches all the top pinnacles and is then sort of clubbed nearly to death in terms of career reputation and funding by Anthony Fauci's AIDS apparatus for coming out in 1987 in a paper that was an was and is an outstanding paper that should have ended it then. It was a 1987 paper in which he addressed whether, whether uh, retroviruses were causes of cancer and whether retroviruses were causes of AIDS no to both so so it was a you know a lamentation a deconstruction we're on the wrong we're on the wrong roads here kind of paper and the paper was flagged by the um white house and there was a message this is in peter duisberg's book a message came from the white house to the NIH, I believe it was somewhere in the in the sort of press office there. Like, why didn't we flag this paper? So alarm bells start to go off around Peter Duisberg around 19, right there in 1987 is when essentially by writing that paper, as Harvey Bialy said, he sealed his scientific fate in America. That was 
it wasn't the end of Peter Duisburg, but it was the end of Peter Duisburg as a member of the club, the apparatus, as a scientist who could expect to have one peaceful day or a dollar of federal research funding. It was the end of him that way. And so that story is documented in chapter one of my book in great detail. What Anthony Fauci's apparatus did over many, many years to, and it wasn't Fauci alone, it's it's Fauci and, and uh, you know, all his minions, because they all played the game. They're all conditioned to go after Duisburg, to attack him in public, all kinds of, the, the things that went on are just incredible. And uh, he was there because he had such a sort of white knight reputation, a stellar reputation. Um, he was a, He was a big problem for them. So they devoted, I don't know how many millions or how many years to a a besmirching campaign targeting him. And this is the saddest, most depressing and most effective thing that they do is the, the rendering an outstanding person into a pariah. Now look what they have and done in the past. Annette, sorry, I, I don't mean to, to interject. But they have done exactly the same character assassination for the past two to three years. Look at all these doctors, frontline doctors talking about COVID-19 from the beginning. And all of a sudden, a lot of the information they were sharing at the beginning, they're saying, well, I guess they were right after all. Ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, Dr. Zelenko, who passed away, all these people who are trying to save lives. And now all of a sudden they're backtracking it's too late now, but the same thing happened in the eighties. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the, so what I saw to what I watched unfold when those, those are very similar archetypes a Peter McCullough and a Peter Duisburg, a Peter, you know, they're, they're um, stellar and unassailable. Nothing has ever come into question before and then the this this beast machine kicks into high gear now with McCullough, they did not manage to i mean they cut i'm trying to remember what happened to him exactly they have different sort of different weaponry for different people some people merely got thrown off twitter some people had their licenses yanked all all the stuff went on so with covid it was the md's were the fighting dissident heroes with AIDS, it was more uh, scientists, but doctors as well. But COVID was really, you know, frontline doctors. That's who was on the firing line. And I was very uh, heartened to see how many MDs before my very eyes turned into, you know, I want to say turned into Peter Duisburg's, right? They were all over the place, these sacrificing heroic doctors who just said what they had to say and took whatever blows they had to take. But I think prior to this this moment in history, they had no idea that there was this totalitarian system lying in wait, which we knew and we could have told them, but we were so drummed out of history that nobody knew we ever existed pretty much. Well, that's the thing. To you, it must be a lot of... uh... I don't want to say nostalgia because of all that research that you did, but a lot of deja vu happening all over again. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Very much so. And uh, naturally a lot of mixed, 
mixed feelings about that. But one thing that made it somewhat easier for me to deal with COVID, write about it, was that I I, I wasn't alone or or with a handful of people who are just being blasted and blown up and attacked and demonized. Um, I was just... Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it because you don't want to believe. You want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.